perfectly comfortable for coming in and doing the same thing. Most people don't come to work to do something new. They come to work because they work to live. They don't live for work. Entrepreneurs flip that model. They live to work. They live to create something that's never happened before. They're, they're there to make change. That is to create something different. Most people are there to kind of, you know, do the job and go home and enjoy their kids and then live the rest of their lives. And you typically don't need those crazy people until you do. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Steve Blank. Steve, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me, Jess. So I've been a fan for years. I've read your books. I've been given your gifts, given your books as gifts, and then given them away to other people's gifts. And everybody should definitely go to Amazon and buy all your books immediately. But for people that don't know about your background and Stanford and, and these things, can you, give, can you give people a little bit of a background? Well, I'm glad we have an hour because it might take that long, but I'll try to do the short version. <laughs> and feel free when I overshare. So I've had a couple of careers. Uh, I spent uh, four years in the U.S. Air Force during Vietnam and uh, part in Southeast Asia, which will come back and in, in part of the my story as well. Then I became a, a serial entrepreneur. I did eight startups in 21 years in Silicon Valley and uh, retired when I was 45 in the last internet bubble and then had some time to think about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. And this is where things got interesting and co-created what I, what's commonly known as the lean startup method. And then actually started thinking about how to teach this stuff and created a series of classes that are now scaled across both the, the U.S. and now the world for uh, National Science Foundation, Department of Defense, and, and other agencies as well. So I've gone from, a, I guess, a military veteran to a startup entrepreneur to now educator. And in between, I've done some other interesting things. Um, and then happy to talk about any or all, all parts of that. Yeah, I think there's a lot there to talk about. Why don't we start with whatever's most exciting to you right now? I know we talked a little bit about innovation in the military, or is there something else that'd be more fun to start with? Well, we could talk about that. It's and actually military in any type of, excuse me, innovation in any type of government organizations here in California on the West Coast of the U.S. right now, and the time we're recording this, you know, Washington, Oregon, and California are kind of on fire. And we're also dealing with government organizations trying to grapple with that, historically grappled with with much smaller scale fires as well. You know, both Cal Fire, which is the state organization put out fires, and the U.S. military both have a common problem, which might not seem obvious that they're common, is that they're both being disrupted by events out of their control. And they have organizations not designed to deal with disruption. You know, the U.S. military has been kind of talked about, and people now kind of understand what went on is from about 1990 or 91 or so when the fall of the Soviet Union Till about 2016, the U.S. acted like it was the only superpower in the world and basically built military systems and hardware and, and stuff to deal with that. And, and from 2001 to about 2018, focused primarily on non-nation states like al-Qaeda and, and others and ISIS and built military systems to combat those guys. But never thought we had any peer competitors. And in 2018, we woke up and realized that 
Russia had rearmed and China had been building a Navy and, and the Air Force and other uh, parts of their military that could match ours. And they had built weapon systems that actually disrupted the, the things we had built for the, and took for granted for the last 75 years. And we know what happens to commercial companies when they get disrupted. A few of them figure out how to do massive pivots, change leadership, change whatever, and survive. But most of them go out of business and new entrants kind of take over. You know, the classic is Blockbuster, you know, versus Netflix, you know, Apple iPhone versus BlackBerry, et cetera. The, the new replaces the old. That's kind of a hard thing to grapple with if you're like the Department of Defense. Well, what do you mean we're disrupted? And and, and it just means there's a whole set of changes that need to occur, both on the technology side and, in fact, how those technologies are used and how leadership plans for things, that the leadership you had for steady state is very different than the leadership you need in a disruptive environment. And uh, so we're trying to help in, in a variety of areas by uh, offering the Department of Defense some observations about how one might organize and in disruption. And as I said, I just lived through some of the fires in California and realized that our state fire agency and also our, our utility company is going through the same thing, is that in a steady state world, uh, fires were fought with brave ground crews who are still incredibly brave. And, and they had this command and control hierarchy. And here's when they called out the helicopters and the aerial tankers and attack fires. And all that kind of worked until it no longer works because it doesn't scale to the size and class of fires we have. What's equally important is almost always the leadership doesn't scale. It's the type of people who are world-class operating executives, whether they're in business or defense or fire, are, are used to a hierarchy and a set of tools that made sense in one environment that no longer made sense. And you need actually to be thinking about who are the crazy people rather than who are the executors that need to be involved because there needs to be a radically different approach to, to fighting fires, to defense, and also in commercial companies when you get disrupted because sometimes it requires radical changes in, in your business model or profitability or or you know what you were buying for for weapons and if you were in the military or how you were dealing with fires for for cal fire for public agencies does that make sense at all yeah it does and it reminds me a lot of your work i, I think some of the stuff that was so magnetic when i first started learning from you through your books and youtube videos and things like that was when you talked about how like small entrepreneurial startups are not just a smaller version of a bigger company and right. I think about things that you've taught of like, you know, how innovation at large companies can be tough when they've, they've selected for optimizers. You know, they've, they've selected for years of these operators who are good at sitting at a desk and doing the same process over and over and looking for the continuous improvement, operational excellence opportunities. And now that's not the problem anymore. The, you know, right. how to squeeze an extra point of margin is, is not what's going to make the difference anymore. Right. So think about it. Being an incumbent is now an albatross. A big idea, right? Or having been the you know sole superpower for you know 40 years, it's an albatross because you invent invested in all these systems and and all these aircraft carriers and all these others. Well, in in the military's case, our adversaries has figured out asymmetric responses in some cases. Of oh great, well you have 11 carriers, that just means there are 11 targets we need to take out, not 11,000. Boom, you know, or or gee, you know, you've built System X, well. New technologies, machine learning, autonomy, you know, other things allow us to kind of uh, negate some of your advantages. 
And the same is true uh, in the commercial world, right? It just as you described, the people you've put in place to do that and the systems you've put in place, it turns out it's almost inevitable that the biggest impediment to radical innovation in companies, we'll switch back to companies, happens to be your existing VP of sales, who's actually compensated on, you know, on selling existing product X or Y, and now you come up with a radical new idea, which might diminish their commission or kind of screw up their sales model. Almost always the existing VP of sales kind of has their arm crossed and kind of makes a great argument to the CFO about why this will drop revenue or profit. And everybody concludes, well, we obviously can't do this new technology or new product or new business model without understanding that unless you do that, unless you're the one putting yourself out of business, someone else is going to do that. And what's changed for companies nowadays, which is very different when I was an entrepreneur, is that startups and new ventures have more capital or access to more capital than most companies do. And therefore, they not only have radical new ideas in, in both technology and business models, but they're funded at scale to actually take on existing incumbents. That's a that's a big idea. And so this the, this trap for large corporations is, as you said, simply believing that they exist to execute the existing business model. And that's the kind of a trap that that um, our existing our existing stock markets and the way the the whole system is set up is you know quarter to quarter gains in, in um, revenue and profit, and also board members trying to fight off and management teams trying to fight off activist investors who want to take companies apart and sell it for pieces, which is why Eric Reese's uh, long-term stock exchange was such a good idea, at least in theory. I'm not, I'm not sure in practice whether it's going to work, but but it certainly, in theory, is designed to solve that problem. You know, it's so interesting to see how these principles seem to show up over and over when you get groups of people together. You know, it could be for-profit, non-profit, government, and, and it does seem to have this correlation that it's like the common element there is humans, right? Well, the common element is most humans love certainty and, and want to diminish chaos and, and uncertainty. And in fact love repeatable processes. We seem to be wired for most of the population to do that for safety and for repeatability. And if you think about it, it's probably not hard to imagine that that it was hardwired when we were on the plains of a savanna somewhere in Africa. You know, like if there was enough food and water, people went, yeah, we're staying here. And there was probably some genetic, you know, mutation where a couple of people's brain chemistry was always wondering what was over the next hill. And most of those people never came back because they got eaten, you know, but every once in a while, one of them would come back and go, there's a lot more food over here. And, and so I believe that's a recessive gene that though is a survival gene for the human race, or else we'd all still be sitting in that same savanna. Or, you know, someone said, hey, look, if you make a rock round, we could like make a wheel. Or look, when lightning hits, we could actually take that stick and we could cook some food. Where other people would say, you know, what's what's wrong with eating raw meat? We've been eating raw meat for thousands of years. I think that recessive gene is what actually drives entrepreneurship, but it's not what the entire population does. In fact, it makes the most people incredibly uncomfortable. You know, world-class entrepreneurs thrive in chaos and uncertainty. In fact, they get uncomfortable when things do get repeatable and scalable. And and it's that kind of variant that I think creates this dynamic society. And when you have a culture and capital that support it, then you get innovation clusters and innovation cultures, both 
is in parts of a country and also inside of companies. It's why Apple under Jobs was incredibly creative, creating new industries almost you know every two or three years. It's why SpaceX and Tesla, you know, two of the most innovative com com companies in the world, were done by one certifiably insane individual who actually turned out to be right um, on, on most stuff, not all stuff. So if you look at that, you realize that there, this is just a small percentage of the population. In fact, the the closest thing a, a founder is to, to any career is to an artist, not to an accountant or an engineer or anything else. A world-class founder sees things that other people don't. They hear things that other people don't. You know, that's that's a description of an artist. And much like an artist, most of the things that artists do actually fail. Not every painting is, you know, you know, the Mona Lisa, or not every sculpture is, you know, the Pieta, or or not every symphony is Beethoven's Fifth. Most of them were like pretty shitty compositions. But in fact. It's that passion and vision that allow you to get off, up off the floor and continually do it again. That's the great description of what an entrepreneur is. And, and what we didn't realize is there isn't an infinite number of artists or sculptors or painters, but some people are hardwired for actually having that skill. And what we've recognized 500 years ago is that we could teach it via apprenticeship. And what we realized about 100 years ago is that it's probably a good idea to recognize that talent early. So we teach art and music, you know, in, in, in elementary school, finger painting and making little clay ashtrays and whatever. And most people like me couldn't even draw a circle, but some like realize, oh, wait a minute, this is something you could actually do. I could get paid to paint or I could get paid to whatever. Eventually we're gonna realize that we need to teach innovation entrepreneurship in elementary schools as well to see if we could identify very early those people with those same set of artistic skills for business than, than we have for artistic schools, artistic, artistic skills for art and, and, and something else. Does that make sense at all? Sorry for the soliloquy here, but. Well, I'm just finding it really encouraging because I took the very traditional route to, to finance and mergers and acquisitions. I'm an art school dropout. <laughs> who, who I was an illustration major and ended up because of my sales skills and having been starting my own businesses, I got headhunted to try and sell CEOs on why they should let Citigroup sell their company for them. You know, this is making me feel much better about, about my uh, art school dropout creds there. Yeah. I, in fact, there's probably a great intersection, just like we know there's great intersection between the um, you know, scientists and, and, and music, actually. And uh, there's probably a great intersection between artists and entrepreneurs somewhere about those same types of skill sets that, you know, I, I, I'll go back to the reason why we run into these problems with existing organizations is that being able to see the future is, is a rare skill. And, and it unnerves people who are incredibly comfortable for coming in and doing the same thing. Most people don't come to work to do something new. They come to work because they work to live. They don't live for work. Entrepreneurs flip that model. They live to work. They live to create something that's never happened before. They're, they're there to make change. That is to create something different. Most people are there to kind of, you know, do the job and go home and enjoy their kids and then live the rest of their lives. And 
you typically don't need those crazy people uh, until you do. And, and the point is, when the world changes around you, that is, regardless of how good you were doing your existing job, um, you're unprepared unless you've actually had a group of dis people capable of dealing with disruption. And when that happens, those people are the ones that need to step up into leadership. And and on, I think the biggest story in the 20th century was when Churchill became prime minister of the, the UK in, in the beginning of World War II. He was the crazy person that no one wanted in power for 25 years after you know he screwed up the admiralty and and and, and after Gallipoli in in World War One. But he was the one who was basically the only guy talking about Hitler and, and the fact that this is a menace that needed to be faced. And there was only one guy they could turn to in, in what was clearly a, the most disruptive time and for survival for, for probably the Western world. And it turned out to be the perfect guy. And it turned out also when it was time for normalcy again, the first thing the British did was throw him out of office. Uh, does, does that make sense? I mean, I, I think I, I think of Churchill as probably the best example of who you turn to when your world has been disrupted. He's actually the wrong guy when there was steady state, you know, things are just fine. It was actually the right guy uh, because he saw things that other people didn't. And he was willing to take action in a way that other people won't. So sorry to get into this rat hole of, um, of people and disruption and whatever, but it happens to be top of mind uh, for me right now. And, uh, you know, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, and that's obviously another large disruptive element in everybody's lives, both personal and business. And I think the same things are in play. We just taught a series of classes at, at Stanford called Hacking for Recovery, and then the state of Hawaii picked it up, and, and we also taught it for the state of Hawaii about how to get existing businesses to think about new business models if yours has been disrupted, but also to get uh, entrepreneurs to think about what new opportunities, you know, remote learning and telemedicine and all these things have now opened up. And so could they take advantage of this as one giant disruptive event completely out of most people's control, but, but it will change the nature of real estate, of travel, about certainly about hospitality, restaurants, et cetera. How do you take advantage of those changes? Yeah, you know, there's something you said earlier that's really interesting to me. We have our audience is mostly entrepreneurs and investment fund managers and, you know, folks that you would think would be tuning into a show about innovation, right? But when you talk about how being an incumbent can be an albatross, I'm interested in any thoughts you have. You know, like you look at us, we're going up against big REITs like Blackstone or somebody like that. Or, you know, we just had somebody on the show from Rhode Island and she helps boutique mutual funds who are trying to sell against BlackRock or something like this, right? And those big guys can seem so overwhelming. I'm interested in any thoughts that you have in growing the investment fund space when we do have this disruption of COVID and, you know, maybe those big guys have always felt like the 800-pound gorilla. And any thoughts for that world? Yeah, so so uh, that space is way above my pay grade, but that will won't stop me from commenting on it. Um, so I always loved uh, to compete with incumbents because historically they move really slow, and they move slow not because they're stupid or they're dumb people there, but they're but remember I went back to that VP of sales model about like why should I change? We're making a ton of money. This new model will cost me more. You could you could find 
places where existing incumbents just won't go because it might be not profitable for them right now, but you might be able to either make money or get scale in a way that they can't. And in fact, that's the first thing I would look at is like, what won't they touch? Because, you know, it's going to screw up someone's balance sheet or, you know, or, you know, commission or whatever. Or two is, do you have some insight about a niche that they just don't see yet? Or a couple of people in their company might be smart enough to see, but they haven't turned it into a product or service because it either isn't large enough. Remember, if you're a multi-billion dollar company, a $10 million opportunity is not an opportunity. But for a startup, that's a great place to start. That's number one. Or number two is, is it just something that you know because you're focused on that domain and they offer just some, a broad array of services that don't actually uh, service that particular niche very well. And you could use that as, again, another beachhead. So I tend to look for not that I'm competing with a multi-billion dollar you know, uh, fund, but that I'm looking for opportunities that they don't either see or don't want to uh, deal with that will allow me to get started, that gets me initial customers and credibility, that allows me to kind of uh, broaden my base. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd be interested in your thought. Like I was, I'm thinking about like the Clayton Christensen competing against luck book where he's talking about a lot of time there's a lot of opportunity in going after the non-consumers, right? Instead of going head to head with the big guys. And so along the lines of what you're saying, like our strategy is like, you know, what pension fund manager is going to pick unknowns like us over $500 billion Blackstone? That's, that might be a tough pitch. But for us, we thought, what if we go to the investors they don't care about? What if we go meet individually with the entrepreneurs around the country? And, you know, for them, it's so efficient to just sell their investment by taking shares, you know, taking a fund public, calling a pension fund, put it through the big wirehouses like, you know, Merrill Lynch or, or Morgan Stanley, right? But we thought, you know, it's not efficient to go hire a whole nationwide team of, of sales reps to actually sit with wealthy entrepreneurs and answer all their questions until they feel comfortable. But maybe that's a space that, you know, because it's low competition, there's, there's a real opportunity. Any thoughts about that? So, so what you just described, Jess, is Robin Hood for wealthy entrepreneurs, right? I mean, if you think about, right, Robin Hood, the, the yeah. way to sell slices, right? So, so there was a model that was incredibly disruptive that, that basically just said, well, why don't we slice it differently, you know, and cut out all these people and kind of allow people to buy kind of a, a fraction. I mean, you just basically articulated that in a very different way for a slightly different audience. So yeah, I, I think that's a that's a possible model. I mean, the nice thing is though, I think in your business, um, because not a lot of physical hardware is involved, you could run MVPs on different products and services that are fairly inexpensive. That is, you could run, well, let's run this experiment. Well, let's run this one. And in fact, you could create different websites for different versions of your company and run three to five of them at a time and say, well, which one kind of worked? Well, I was thinking about what you said about like, serving people in a way that they're not being served, you know, and I think from an efficiency standpoint, you look at like Red Bull. I mean, for, for all of my friends who grew up snowboarding and stuff, like that's a great, that's a great outlet to get top quality (laughs) entertainment quickly, right? Or like Bloomberg, these people built this media channel. And if you're like a New York stock trader, I mean, Bloomberg's like vital to your, (laughs) a a Bloomberg terminal and Bloomberg news is, is so important. And I thought it doesn't really feel like there's any of that for the successful entrepreneur. Like 
you've got Inc. Magazine or something like that, that is for entrepreneurs on their way out. But I thought, what if we could run large scale experiments where I, I think of so many friends who have had exits and they're wealthy and they're really smart about their one thing, but the finance industry makes them feel dumb about investments and uses all these acronyms and, and confuses them. But they, they feel like they should know because they're a successful entrepreneur. So they don't like admitting to their golfing buddies that they don't know what all those acronyms mean. I thought, what if we build like a media channel for them and then have in-person reps to answer questions in addition? So, so what, let's go all the way back to what you just described, which I think is really interesting, is that there's a new class or a new cohort of, of entrepreneurs that are sufficiently large and have sufficient capital that didn't exist 20 years ago. I mean, it's a big idea, right? So, so, so number one is, gee, there's a market here that like wasn't here when people started Inc. or Forbes or Fortune or whatever. So I would start with that as, as kind of an underlying premise of what you just said. It, it wasn't like... I. That is, if I run the thought experiment, I don't think your magazine would have succeeded in 1980. But but I think it would succeed, or sorry, your your financial model wouldn't have succeeded in 1980, but it'll succeed, number one, in 2020, because there is a new kind of base of people who do have those questions, and, and there is nothing to serve them. That's where I would start from. Does that make sense or not? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. And so if they now exist, you know, are there sufficient numbers of them with sufficient capital? Yes. Good. Well, how are they solving the problem today? Well, I don't know. You know, then you start asking that question. Well, how would they like to solve the problem? Oh, well, your hypothesis is, well, they'd like to solve the problem if there could be someone or some something that actually spoke to them in a language they were familiar with. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think my question is, if I'm taking from your learnings, how do I, you know, how do I design MVPs other than like try and build a media organization as big as Bloomberg? <laughs> you know, what, are the, oh, no, what, what kind it, of small MVPs would you would you recommend yeah. if we're trying to pursue a thesis like that? So I, I think that let's go back to who do you think these people are? I think that they are the the entrepreneurs who who have been reading your books for 15 years and it actually worked for them. The and, you know and the, how much capital do they have to de- deploy? Yeah, let's let's put it let's call it that kind of you know five to fifty million category. Great. And how are they investing it today? They they're doing some angel investing with their other friends in their network. They probably own a little bit of real estate. They're doing some deals with their golfing buddies. They might have a financial planner that they like turned over some money to that's doing mutual funds and some of this kind of stuff they don't they think is boring. Great. And what value do you think you would bring? What's the key value you would bring? I think that so we've been studying Warren Buffett materials for about a decade and we've we've built some courses on it. And I think that, you know, we could make finance stop feeling like a black box. And these, these like go, go, go entrepreneurs who now they need to do wealth preservation, but they haven't spent 30 years learning that skill set. I think we could help them feel confident on what they're doing with this money to create passive income and to, to do these kind of things. Great. So, so I asked you these questions to now figure out what are the MVPs, right? So, so now MVP one might be, let's just simply test our assumptions that there are a sufficient number of these people, right? Maybe you already know that. Let's, let's test, let's do an, another MVP to, 
kind of, you know, and, and by the way, that this notion of MVP, while it says minimum viable product, is actually to me, whatever gets you the most learning at any point in time in, for any part of your business model, not only product market fit, but like, who are the customers? Where are they? What do they know today? How do I reach them? You know, what should the pricing be? All those are MVPs you could build. In, in, in your case, I'd be interested in like, well, what's their resistance to like investing in something else? How do they, you know, how do they get recommendations? How do they hear about, you know, new investment vehicles? How do, you know, the other thing I'd be testing is like, how do you compare it to Wealthfront and, and other things like that? How, what was their adoption strategy? So to me, MVP is not just about how do I build a product and test it, but how do I test all my early assumptions that you just streamed together in a, in a nice descriptive paragraph? I would break that down to say, how many of these are hypotheses and how many of them are facts? And how do I quickly turn that, that one paragraph, which sounds great, into a set of validated facts Rather than it, it sounds great, but before I build the product, how do I assume all these assumptions are actually true? Does that make sense? So when I think of MVPs, I don't just think of let me build the financial product. I think about let me test every part of those business model assumptions, including the product. Does that help? Yeah. You know, so thinking specifically about your part of the country, if I was trying to, to take this more like media approach, what kind of what kind of thoughts do you have about attracting the, the the tech entrepreneurs who maybe had a big exit and now they've got a different set of problems to solve because they all of a sudden they've got a bank account with a bunch of extra zeros? Yeah, that's above my pay grade. Um, truly, you know, I I think yeah I I don't know and I think running a set of experiments. I mean, you know, do they go to private? You know, we have a private banker. Do they go to Schwab? Do they go to Wealthfront? Do they go somewhere else? I think understanding that is kind of a, a key to your business is where are they? You know, what do they do when they first park the money? And there is no brand yet, which I think is your point of, well, here's the known brand that you go to when you like have some liquidity. You know, I always kind of think of that as you should be so lucky to have that problem. <laughs> but but the good news is there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are kind of have run into liquidity events uh, in the last couple of years. And, but there is no brand that people, I think, reach for yet. And that could be your space. And, and so the, the other question is, can you make this a branding thing versus a service thing? As will people think of you as a trusted brand even before you become a trusted brand? And, and, and I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting experiment. You know, let's cut off part one here, but I actually want to start part two of the episode with that very question. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Please go to steveblank.com, read 20 years of great writing that Steve's done, buy his books, take a, try to get in Stanford and take his classes. What, what else can we promote for you, Steve, here? No, that's, that's it. You know, it's, it's very funny. When I was an entrepreneur, I was always selling stuff. And now that I'm an educator, I don't really care. <laughs> I, I got to tell you a very funny story is like uh, the first time I was like teaching an entrepreneurship class, I won't tell you what, what school, I realized I had a couple of students who were actually cribbing their papers from someone else. And then I go, it's an entrepreneurship class, cheating in your cheating in your entrepreneurship class is kind of like cheating in your parachute packing class. 
you're not going to hurt me. It's like when you pull that ripcord, if you didn't pay attention in class, you're the one who's going to hit the ground. So I always been, I don't know how I, I, I came on this story, but I always thought it was amusing. Meaning if anybody would like to get smarter, I think was the point. There's there's some interesting stories that might be relevant for you on steveblank.com. There's a set of categories on the left of the website. You could kind of pick and choose what might be interesting to read. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks for part two. Yeah, I love it.